and welcome to the Odd Years podcast. It's an odd-numbered year, which means that national elections are on a hiatus, but the issues, trends, and personalities that impact electoral politics are always in cycle. This week, we talked to Republican pollster Patrick Ruffini about his fascinating new book, Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. Now, in 2020, Donald Trump's big margin of victory among white working class voters was expected. But his success in winning a larger share of the Latino and black vote was not. Patrick Gaffini, the co-founder of the analytics and polling firm Echelon Insights, argues that Trump's success with these voters of color was part of a bigger realignment in our politics, one in which the Democratic Party is more affiliated with the wealthy and well-educated, and the Republicans are now the party of the working class. Can Trump keep and grow this multiracial populist coalition in 2024? Or will Joe Biden be able to make the case that Democrats remain the more comfortable fit? For voters of color. Here's my conversation with Patrick about that and much more. It was recorded on October 26th. Patrick Ruffini, thank you for joining me. Really appreciate this. Thank you, Amy. Sure. I, I want to first start with how you approached this topic. And you wrote in the introduction to your book about how challenging this 2016 election was for you, that you didn't see Trump coming or see a Trump victory as a a likely outcome. And you blame that on your background, you said, that it blinded you to an accurate understanding of the new Republican electorate. And I wonder if you can kind of Walk us through that. Yeah. So what we're talking about here is really just education polarization, that the fact is that heading into 2016, both myself and virtually everyone in my cohort of Republican consultants, strategists were absolutely either amused or horrified by in in varying terms about what was happening in the 2016 primary with uh, Trump's new speech. It was first, I mean, my sequence, and I think most people's, was first amused and horrified. And then, lo and behold, we find out that not only did he win, but he won in this very surprising and unexpected way in terms of the ability to win a state like Michigan or Pennsylvania, which had bedeviled Republicans like Lucy in the football for election cycle after election cycle. So there was this kind of clear eyed. I mean, I really felt like I needed to take a clear eyed accounting after that election and recognize that, yeah, there's something to Trump's approach specifically that you know made him, I think, a better version of a Republican candidate than than we have seen for people in those states, while simultaneously making him a far worse option for college educated suburban voters. Which um, you know, I am part of that demographic. Pretty much, most people listening to this will be part of that demographic, and that's why I think collectively the political community was blinded to this because it was so perfectly polarized on education that many of us didn't see it heading into 2016. Yeah, that is an excellent point. And I, and I wonder if 
you know, Donald Trump obviously is our most recent manifestation of this, but we've also had other Republican candidates in recent era who could be sort of clumped into the quote unquote populist side of the aisle, say uh, Rick Santorum or a Mike Huckabee. But even as they were running, and I don't know about you, Patrick, but I sort of put them in the category of, well, they're evangelical. Well, they're culturally conservative. We didn't really see them as a populist voice, even though what they were saying Mm -hmm. on the economy and some of the issues they were addressing really feel very similar to where Trump went. So what was he able to do that a Santorum, that a Huckabee wasn't? I think that he was a master showman, like none we have seen yeah. in American politics and in the, re, in the modern era. And so um, the entertainment value aspect of Trump in comparison to every other populist candidate that we've ever seen, at least in recent history, can't be underestimated. Even now in the Republican primary, how does somebody continue to run with 91 criminal indictments? That continues to be a vexation for people. But I think that the maybe non-political aspects of this can't be overlooked. And yeah, I mean, I think that exactly this is also partly the it was also partly the recent track record of looking at the 2012 Flavor of the Month candidate from Herman Cain to Michelle Bachman to Newt Gingrich to Sarah Rick Santorum. You saw this like surge of interest in these conservative outsider candidates, and then oh, they would fade. And that was absolutely the template and that people applied to Donald Trump, but he turned out to be something quite different. So let's do a little work on language for a second. It seems as if, especially in the political press, we put the words populist and working class, we use them interchangeably. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us what you mean by populist and what you think the folks who cover campaigns that cover elections and politics should think of when you're talking about a populist movement as you talk about in your book. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a really good point. And what I really try to do is I, I am not trying to reinvent the phrase or reclaim the phrase for any particular side of the political aisle. I think you'd have people on the left, for instance, they would say, well, we're the populists. You know, we're the ones who are fighting for dramatic tax increases on these corporations and billionaires. And so we can give this money and spend it on programs for working class people. So a lot of people on the left certainly would take offense to that. And I I would let them make that argument. But I would also say I do, in some sense, use the term interchangeably to refer to a basic certain style of looking at the world that is non-elite, that is not influenced by the experiences that people who spent four years on a college campus would have. I also understand that that does not mean necessarily that these are fire-breathing Huey Long type populists, that all you need to do is simply dial up this sort of very harsh or chaotic style of rhetoric, all right, to appeal to these people, which I think that that was the, let's say people who are maybe programmatically populist or have really talked about, really kind of emphasized, is that you're really talking about as a breakdown between an elite and let's say a more 
average person view of the world. I mean, it's, it's much simpler, I think, than people are making it out to be. And why I, you know, do kind of create at the really outset of this book is I create this sort of what I call the multiracial populist coalition, which is counterintuitive in some sense. It, it involves a combination, a coalition of white non-college voters and non-white voters. Now, how on earth are we grouping those groups together? Because one is very far to the right. One is one has traditionally voted to the left. And it's because in terms of their reactions to Donald Trump, it's basically saying, you know, do you think Donald Trump was better than Mitt Romney or not? <laughs> and for 70% of America, at least for groups that, in, that are in 70% of the country, he was. And this sort of more populist inflected Republican was a stronger version of the Republican Party for those folks. So that's what I tend to think of when I mean populist. I tend to think about it in terms of its electoral manifestation and mm. the coalitions that actually emerge rather than trying to ascribe it to very specific policies. Right. And that's another one of your points is that, again, we hear populism or here working class, we go right to what are the issue sets that drive these voters? This is about the economy and their place in the economy or their status in terms of where they fit sort of in the class structure, right? But your point is that this is less, and I I think others are making the same point, it's really less about economic policy than it is about ideology. And it is about a more holistic view of the world, culturally, socially, and economically is part of it. But the cultural and social piece also have incredible influence. Yeah, and it's that's dominant. I mean, culture is dominant in terms of how people actually vote on issues. I mean, I think that you've had people both on the right and on the left recently, the folks at American Compass, they're a right-leaning think tank that is really focused and, and really devoted to these economic populist issues in response to the changes in the Republican Party under Donald Trump. And they released a very eye-opening set of polling data which suggests on many issues, right, Republicans have come around to a populist position specifically on issues of trade and globalization that really responded to Donald Trump's rhetoric. But when you look at do the same voters and particularly the voters most aligned with Donald Trump, um, which is what I was interested in, you know, this is sort of the, the very conservative Republican. Trump has become their hero. And you look at, you know, he has near absolute support among those voters in the primary. Where are they coming down on issues like tax cuts? Where are they coming down on issues like regulating Wall Street? And they're not really coming down on the side of the more quote unquote populist position, because a lot of times the populist position has been traditionally defined as the more left wing left-leaning position, right? So, you know, you have folks on the quote-unquote populist right who really reject that, really reject those specific issues. And so, you know, I I do think that it means maybe something a little bit different than maybe some policy person inside the Beltway might might think. Yeah, you labeled it somewhere as the difference between tough guy populism and welfare light uh, policy. So what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that what people were responding to in Donald Trump was as much or more his personality than it was Mm. in his personality character, in his personal characteristics, just the willingness to say things that you would never hear a politician say. Um, And there's always a fascinating finding, right? When, you know, you have Republicans 
who really see Trump as a truth teller. And obviously a lot of other people's minds go, what? <laughs> That's crazy. How could this guy be telling the truth? He's, he lies about everything. And what, the, what they mean is that he is exposing the sacred cow. He is saying the emperor has no clothes. And that is really, you know, the willingness to really go at the institutions in a way that sort of, yeah, he tells maybe falsehoods along the way, right? But it's something that I think that is sort of the standard that people are applying. Mm-hmm. So it's the style and the enemies that he has and the fight that he has, that they see that he has, and no other, let's say, previous generation of Republican, in their view, had it. We'll be right back with more from The Odd Years. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into The Odd Years podcast. We hope you're enjoying the interviews, but we need your help. One of the best ways to support our podcast is by leaving a review on your favorite platform. Leave just a few words about what you like about the show. Your review not only helps us know what we're doing right, but it also helps other people find the odd years. And speaking of helping other listeners find the odd years, please share your favorite episode of the show with someone you think might enjoy these conversations. On behalf of our entire team, thank you for your support. And now back to our conversation. That raises such an interesting point because when you listen to Democrats on the populist left, so Bernie Sanders and his acolytes would tell you, we are losing the working class vote. And the reason Democrats are losing the working class vote is because we're not fighting hard enough on a $15 or $20 minimum wage. We're not fighting enough for Medicare for all. We're not fighting enough on some of those, um, as you said, going after the, the corporate America and the huge gap between their salaries and average people. But your point is, well, actually, that's not the way to win over the sort of swing populist voters, they're coming to their populism through the lens of, again, more of a, we're fighting, but we're also fighting against some of the social and cultural left issues more so than we are supporting something like an increased minimum wage or labor unions, for example. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things you found in that survey is that far and away, the biggest concern for Republicans and Trump voters were things like cultural issues, were things like, you know, the gender ideology debate, critical race theory, things like that, that were really cultural hot button topics, right? And that's something we see in our polling as well. When we ask people, you know, kind of this sense of, are we losing maybe some of these finer points of economic policy don't matter if we are losing our country and we are losing the country we know and love. And uh, we're seeing elites in Washington, D.C. and New York City along the coast, right, disrespect kind of those values that we have and hold dear personally. That is how people are, are seeing. And, you know, I think that was borne out again in that American Compass Bowl. You had, you know, items that were these cultural hot button topics that were 70 percent, 60, 70 percent of folks saying in the Republican base saying it. And we're very, very concerned about this. There's also a dimension of this that is concern about America itself and its status and its leadership status around the world. So you see issues like China really 
popping up. And I don't think anyone has really figured out how to address that. You know, I think you have some of Trump's competitors in the Republican primary looking to make that a defining issue. And nobody has really seemed to figure that out. But it's sort of this fear, I think, a broader fear beyond any individual issue of are we losing the country both to enemies outside the country and are we losing it to maybe the enemy within and and to a set of values that we don't recognize. So I think that is a larger issue for a lot of folks and really all the economic issues in terms of family benefit and all these ideas that got floated around the sort of old reformicon right or the let's say the so-called new right on economics really fall way down on that priority list. That's right. So Patrick, help us understand how this becomes multiracial if so much of the attraction to Donald Trump and from the Democrat, what Democratic perspective would say this derisively is that, you know, his attraction is to white voters who have racial high levels of racial resentment. So how can Donald Trump both win over white voters with a high level of racial resentment and also create a multiracial coalition? That's a surprise, right? That's a surprise because you you go out of 2016 and very much the narrative was the coalitional shift in 2016 was really all about whites and it was all about this education polarization among whites where you have really the the folks who were really repulsed by Donald Trump were kind of that that cosmopolitan college-educated voter. And the the folks that were really drawn to Donald Trump were really this non-college voter, particularly in places like the upper Midwest, where they were pretty evenly split politically. So there was a lot of room for a Donald Trump to grow. Whereas you talk in a place like the, the South, there's not a lot of room for Republicans to grow there among white voters, but there was a lot of room for Trump to grow among white non-college voters in the Midwest. So that was really the coalitional shift in 2016. I think that the kind of the surprise in 2016 was that, you know, despite what people said and not unfairly was very divisive, insulting rhetoric to Latinos, Mexicans, all these like rising demographic groups and harsh rhetoric on immigration, he didn't really lose any support in that community. Now, you would think that like, it wouldn't be the white college voters that are swinging hardest against them. It should be Latino voters. That didn't happen. So what happens in 2020 when you kind of remove immigration from the picture as an issue, right? Mm -hmm. He he doesn't really talk about the border in the same way, or he's actually gotten a chance to implement some of these policies and it hasn't resulted in this sort of calamity that people are, are talking about, we're talking about in 2016, that- Right, we're um, talking what, about COVID in 2020. Right, we're talking about COVID, right. so, we're talking about the eco- yeah. reopening the economy. The economy, and you have an, right. An issue set that is just fundamentally different than it was in 2016, all of a sudden yeah. he surges among Hispanics. Uh, 18 point, according to Catalyst, 18 point surge. But he also goes up among Black voters a, a few points. So while you could attribute some of that in 2016 was Obama was no longer on the ballot, there was no longer like a, a point of comparison to Obama. Now it was just kind of a decline and a slight decline. Now, obviously, that's, those aren't huge numbers for Trump, but it was clearly something where the coalitions are, are shifting. And yeah. you look at that that trend continuing, continuing in 2022 with some of the things that happened in with Lee Zeldin in New York, with DeSantis in Florida, in various places where Republicans continued to do well and Democrats continued even into, let's say, this Louisiana the governor's race, continued to have problems with black turnout, all these signs of erosion 
of democratic working class non-white support continue. So, you know, why is that? And, you know, I think that it's multifaceted, right? I think that, you know, to some extent, I talk about this multiracial mainstream majority early on in the book. And it means that the racial politics of America today are not the same as they were in the 1960s or the 1980s or even 20 years ago, that you have more racial integration in terms of intermarriage. You have Black voters increasingly moving out to the suburbs, Hispanics moving out to the suburbs. The census has been really, really stark in some of these are suburban Texas counties in particular. What that means is that, you know, to some extent, like the voters there are just not going to be as divided in the same way along racial lines as, as, as we've seen in the past, where you really had very strong racial polarization to the left among non-white voters. I think a lot of those things are going away. You just also have an issue set that's different, that you've had a fading of the Democratic I think, you know, I think Bernie Sanders is trying to has been trying to resurrect a version, but it should be said he wasn't successful in doing that in either of his primary runs. That what you end up having is at least a Democratic establishment that has really been talking more about social and cultural issues in reaction to Trumpism, right? right? In reaction to trying to generate this you know, reaction to this backlash to Trump among kind of the, the voters they've been losing, and they've not been successful in doing that. So the, the, you know, kind of the critique that Democrats have had of Republicans is sort of the party of the rich, the party of not working class people, that's kind of been muddled in recent years based on demographically, who's been moving towards the Democratic Party and who's been moving in the direction of the Republicans. Right. And that now it's Democrats who are kind of the country club party. You go into most high-end suburbs anywhere in America, and these are areas that are voting for not just Joe Biden, but in many cases for Senate candidates or gubernatorial candidates who are Democrats by significant margins. And I'm wondering, do you see this happening that by the next 10 years or so, we're really going to see a full realignment where those one-time college-educated, wealthy Republicans are now basically Democrats, and the working-class voters outside of those liberal enclaves uh, or affluent suburbs, maybe we'll say, stick in the Republican camp? Or do you think that Trump has been the center of our politics now (laughs) for so long? We've been sort of realigning around him. And when he's gone, does this kind of fall apart? Does this whole theory fall apart? The when he's gone piece is obviously like a, a big moving target right now. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, is he, <laughs> right. is he gone in 2028? Is he gone right. in 2032? Is it 2030? Yeah. You know. I right. Mean, at, some uh, point. at some point, I think there's something to that. But um, the argument, I think Trump was an accelerant. Yeah. Two things that have been happening for a while and a realignment that's been happening for a while. So I really lead off the book talking about, I think the book a lot of people will recognize about this trend very early on was what's the matter with Kansas and the sort of this idea of back in the 2000s, back in the Bush elections, people were starting to notice that there was starting to be this rural-urban polarization taking off in a big way that we hadn't seen before, kind of been a precursor to 2016. I mean, that was sort of an almost a 2000 election swing was almost as significant and surprising as the 2016 one was. And back then it was 
Well, you still have a bunch of country clubbers and the Republicans, and they're being joined by all these folks who are more working class. And the sort of liberal argument was, why are these people voting against their economic self-interest? And right. because we are the party that stands for the working class. And I think that was still reflected in the party's rhetoric and the party's rhetoric, even in the 1990s and the 2000s was just much more centered around maintaining and defending these programs. That's not to say like that's been completely abandoned, right? It's not to say that the old policy commitments are gone. It's just everything has just been overshadowed. I think on both sides by this cultural appeal. And now, I mean, if you actually look at like, you know, who are the folks who are, you know, there's been academic studies on this and sort of like, there are actually more people kind of voting against their economic self-interest on the left than there are on the right, right. in terms of, you know, why right. are those rich suburban Atlanta people, why are, why are they voting for a party that wants to tax them more, right? And the answer is partly like, well, do the Democrats want to tax them more? They're trying to give them back their SALT deduction, right? So in some things, like things have been muddled in a way, in terms of class politics, and it's become education polarization. But this has not just been happening in the United States, it's been happening throughout the Western world. So, uh, you know, I think even in places like the UK, where you have not had Donald Trump, and particularly a lot of the English speaking countries, they're also seeing these sorts of shifts. And that's why I kind of think this is here to stay, even though when, if, if and when Trump departs the stage, I think you'll see it stabilize, you might see it even revert a little bit. And then there's going to be some other populist leader, right, 10, 20 years from now, who supercharges it again. Right. And so we have to be careful assuming, you know, what life's going to look like 10, 15 years from now. But at least for the immediate future, Patrick, it, it seems like the next Republican candidate for president is going to continue with that level of populist rhetoric. They're not going to sound like, George W. Bush. I think that's right because, and I think this is what the takeaway can be for, let's say, team normal Republican, is I think that you're going to see, and I analogize this to the Glenn Youngkin campaign in Virginia, yeah. right? That he is somebody who stylistically very much reminds you of a Mitt Romney Republican. And there's everything about him reminds you of a Mitt Romney Republican. And at the same time, he attracted the same coalition as Donald Trump did and added people to that coalition, including in very Trumpy areas. So including in Southwest Virginia, Trump got 75%, Youngkin gets 80%. And so, you know, I think he gains in the suburbs and he wages a campaign based on populist issues, based on taking back the schools from the, sort of the cultural influence on the left. And so I, I do think that that is a case, you look at somebody like him who has as much stylistically as different as you can get from Donald Trump, and he was still winning or was able to win with Trump's coalition. And as you pointed out, had a policy agenda that did line up with many of the same issues, but the way he talked about it was less confrontational, right? It's stylistic mm -hmm. more than substance. Yes. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to to ask you about, and, and your colleague, Kristen Soltis-Anderson, spent a lot of time with these voters, younger voters. But as we're thinking about a multiracial coalition, you have to look at, okay, who, who are the next generation of voters coming up? Obviously, we know that 
millennials and Gen Zers are our most diverse group of Americans ever. And we know that they're also starting off much further to the left than baby boomers did when they were their age or Gen Xers did when they were their same age. So that becomes the question going forward, which is for the older generations, once those generations are no longer part of the picture, how do Republicans appeal to the younger multicultural coalition, given where they stand on cultural issues, is much further to the left than their parents or grandparents? Yeah, I think it's that is such an interesting question across a number of dimensions, because I really do think that you need to disaggregate this younger voter coalition in by mm. by race and gender. I mean, I think making comparisons between sort of just young, younger and older voters without considering the dramatically different racial and ethnic makeup of that younger electorate that, again, it's not that they start out more democratic, it's that they belong to racial groups that, you know, have historically had mm-hmm. much, much stronger democratic allegiance. I, I will state the optimistic case and Kristen and I will debate this. So there's so much <laughs> of her, her book is directly behind me, right, too. So I think she's absolutely right in early in flagging. This is a real challenge, but I think it's a challenge both in terms of a different generation coming up that has maybe different attitudes and perspectives, but it's also much more diverse. And so I, I approach this from the perspective of we address these voters as you know members of the communities in which they come from and understand them in terms of the communities in which they come from. And in many cases, within the Latino vote, definitely within the African-American vote, it's younger voters who are going to be narrowing and chipping away that Democratic margin. And particularly among Black voters, you know, this extremely strong loyalty to the Democratic Party that has really been led by older voters who have direct recollection and memories of the civil rights era, right? When this democratic allegiance was first formed. You have younger voters who are more secular, but at the same time, they're less shaped by this formative experience where Black voters became bonded to the Democratic Party in the way that they have. So I think that as you're seeing in that community, as you're seeing generations turn over, I think you're going to see Republicans actually gain. You know, I've done a lot of polling in of this vote, uh, the Hispanic vote in Texas, too. And there you also see the same kind of phenomenon. And you have Equis, right? They're the Democratic, uh, the leading, I think, Democratic firm that like really does research into Latinos. And, you know, they made a strong argument. And I think, you know, based on their data, that really the strongest shift to Trump that we saw in the 2020 election was among these lower propensity. And, you know, by lower propensity, you can almost always substitute in younger voter, younger, who again, have just less loyalty and less allegiance to either political party and can be easily shaped by the kind of candidate that is put forward. So I think it's a, it's a very, it's still a very dynamic picture, but I would, I would just urge, you know, as we're, as we're kind of discussing this issue, really take a look very strongly at what's going on within each of these racial and ethnic communities. Yeah, that's an excellent point and an excellent place to end this official conversation. The Odd Years is brought to you by the Cook Political Report team. It's our way of sharing the questions we love to ask and the conversations we enjoy having behind the scenes. If you'd like to explore more of what we have to offer, 
consider subscribing at cookpoliticalreport.com slash subscribe. Odd Years listeners can use the discount code ODD10, that's ODD, the number 10, to save 10% on any subscription. This offer is available only to new subscribers. One fun question that we ask all of our guests is if they can remember back to the first political figure that you, if you think back to that first political figure you met or interacted with that had an impact on you. So this is a very, let's say not an unexpected answer based on the book I've just written, because I think we <laughs> went back to, we went back to, you know, my experience, life experience being pretty different and trying to this, this book being a kind of a, an attempt to come to terms with, you know, maybe a different side of of the country that maybe I had grown up with. But, you know, I, you know, in the early 90s, I really looked up and admired the Bush family and George H.W. Bush in particular, who stylistically couldn't have been <laughs> more different than a Donald Trump. Um, right. So I still have, you know, I have a Bush Kenny Bunkport keychain on my car. I mean, I still have that like it's 30 years old and it's held up. Right. Um, <laughs> so I have a, a huge, uh, just a huge, uh, I had a huge amount of respect for that family. And also, you know, having had the chance to work for the 43rd president. Certainly that was something like from 1988 was actually the first election that I could remember and followed. And that kind of stuck with. Me. Did you get to meet George H.W. Bush? I got to, I don't know that I met him personally. I okay. remember two days before the 92 election, right? I still remember this as sort of like one of the most awesome political memories that I was at a final rally, or I went to the final rally and you're one of the final rallies of the campaign in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which tells you something about kind of that is no longer a place that's in play, for Republicans. And that's no longer really a state that's in play for Republicans, but that's close to where I live. And I showed up, but got shot out, you know, we got shut out and we were sort of waiting on the, on the, (laughs) along the rope line, just wistfully like, oh my gosh, we're not going to get in this airplane hangar. And all of a sudden they start rolling in a fire truck. They start rolling in the floodlights because I think like they hadn't security checked anyone. And he, you know, kind of gets up on the fire truck and starts addressing the folks who didn't make it in. And so that was just one of my early like political memories that I, I just I just remember very vividly to this day. Well, I I really do hope that you keep your Kenny Bunkport keychain safe. I mean, it, that is hard to keep a keychain for 30 years, my friend. Yeah, I mean, so I just actually started reusing it, but it's a, it was very durable. Okay. I, yeah, I want you to be careful with that. It's historic piece there, antique. Um, Patrick, thanks so much. Thanks, Amy. Really enjoyed talking to you. Appreciated this conversation. The Odd Years is brought to you by the Cook Political Report and is produced by Ali Flynn and Catherine Hamm with podcast editing and sound design by Kate Wecker of Sonic Hook Creations.